0: On Local Now Channel Five Twenty Five.
1: It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors.
0: We are gathered here on Hallowed Brown, Horse Street heads bowed down, we'll gather here on hallowed ground.
2: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you heard the show, hey, welcome aboard again. This show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets, usually our house, from nursing home bills. Second part of the show, we talk about other ta- topics, and we'll go into that later. And as most of you know, when we start the show, we usually have one of our attorneys here to ask one of the questions. So we have Way here with us today. Wei, uh, what, what's the question that you have?
3: Oh, sure. So a lot of people ask about Medicaid trust. So what is what exactly is a Medicaid trust, and what does that actually do?
2: Well, the idea behind a Medicaid trust, and, and I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Too many people get hung up on the names of trusts. The names of trusts are really not that important. Uh, whether you call something a premises trust or a land trust or a Medicaid trust or whatever, the name of the trust is not important. What's important is what does the trust accomplish. And a lot of times we combine different trusts for different reasons. Like maybe we have a trust for a disabled child and then we combine that with a trust to avoid probate. So the name of the trust is not important. It's what it accomplishes. But what a lot of people call a Medicaid trust is a trust that you put the assets in there. The trust has to be irrevocable in that you have to have another person as the trustee besides yourself. It can be your son or daughter, and I would say 90% of the trust, that's the way we handle it. We have a son or daughter as a trustee or a combination of children as trustees. So let's say you put your house in the trust. It's a family contract. And the trust says mom and dad have a right to live in the house for the rest of their lifetime. They pay the real estate taxes, the insurance. If they have exemptions like a senior citizens or star program or veterans exemption, they still keep those exemptions. They're still the owner of the house for tax purposes. But they've kind of put their house in a partnership. In other words, they can't sell the house on their own. They can't sell the house without the children. The children can't sell the house without the parents. The parents can fire the trustees, the children, so they're kind of like the managing partners. They're the people in charge, but at the same time, it is a partnership, and you have to have somebody else as a trustee. Again, 90%, 95% of the time, it's going to be your son or daughter. Could it be a trusted nephew or niece? Yes. Could it be a younger brother or sister? Yes. Could it be a significant other? Yes. It's just, like I mentioned before, 90% of our trusts are between parents and children. So let's say you put your house in a trust or other assets, your stock portfolio or whatever. Um, You can apply uh, in New York right now. Let's say you did that today in May, and you put all your assets in a Medicaid trust or an irrevocable trust. And and again, don't get hooked up on the name. A Medicaid trust has to be an irrevocable trust. Not all irrevocable trusts have to be Medicaid trusts. And if you ever want to talk that over, we can talk it over. But in any event put your assets all in an irrevocable trust today in May, you can apply for home care Medicaid on June 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer. So literally, if you put all your assets in the day before Memorial Day and June 1st comes by, you can apply for home care Medicaid in New York. There's no look back period between now and next year, April 1st. So that's one thing. Now, what about nursing home? Well, there's a five-year look back on nursing homes. So if you want to get the five-year clock started, again, if you put your assets in an irrevocable trust in May, June is month number one on the five-year clock. So you're always better off with a shorter clock. You're never worse off with a shorter clock. Um, So if you put your assets in, in May, June is month number one. If you don't make five years out of a nursing home. People are living longer today, and a lot of people do live five years out of a nursing home. But if you don't, then we have to make some adjustments. And, you know, last week I think we talked about different exempt transfers, if they're available. You can always spend money, you know, on your house if it's in a trust. So, in other words, if let's say you go to a nursing home at some point and you got an extra hundred and fifty or $200,000. You can spend that money. You can put money in your house. You can buy a car. You can prepay funerals. There are a lot of things that you can do with with money if, let's say, the five years runs out. If the five years doesn't run out, maybe you use your cash to help make the five years run out. We can always do something, and I can't stress this enough. It's never too, le- too late to do something. We can always do something. So just keep that in mind. And and one of the things, when we talk about Medicaid trust, when we talk about any type of trust, supplemental needs trust, the name of the trust is not important. It is what does the trust accomplish. So getting back, Wei, what, tell us something about yourself. Where would you go to grammar school? Where would you grow up? And uh, how long have you been a lawyer?
3: Oh, I just graduated in May 2021, and I passed the July bar. Uh, my admission process takes a little bit longer. I was just got admitted in February this year. And I came to the United States in 2007 to start my undergraduate. Then I worked a few years, and then I went to law school uh, at Pace University.
2: Okay, so where are you from originally?
3: Oh, I'm from China. Uh, My hometown is a small town in northeastern side of China, which is very close to Russia and the Mongolian border. And then I went to a boarding school for my middle school and high school. Near coastal city in uh, in china
2: so what 's the weather like there near mongolia
3: oh it 's very cold it 's like ten times colder than here. We have almost six months of winter and it snows almost every day there so um, it 's kind of freezing cold we don 't like we have a longer re- winter vacation because of that, and we have a shorter summer vacation
2: all right so why, why did you decide to go to law school in the United States?
3: I always want to be uh, a lawyer since I was very young. I guess because of my parents, they like to watch all those like TV shows, and I was fascinated about uh, how lawyers can do to the society. And I just kept that mind, kept, kept that idea in mind until like I finished my undergraduate, and uh, I still think I want to do law school. That's why I end up going to a law school.
2: Now when you're talking about TV shows you're talking about Chinese TV shows? Yes. <laughs> okay. So what kind of TV shows do they have about Oh, uh, they
3: have like those uh anti-corruption TV shows or TV shows talking about how like law enforcement act to you know protect like those like my parents love to watch those shows. I don't know why, but like um uh, so I watched the them with my parents and I just had that idea um started from that.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. My grandmother, who was born in Germany, part of it, she learned how to. She learned English by watching TV shows, and one of her most favorite TV shows was Perry Mason, which was about a lawyer in the 1950s, played by Raymond Burr, uh, who also did in a lot of TV movies in in the 80s or 90s. And to and me, they, Godzilla. Well, that yeah, but it has, she didn't watch Godzilla. She watched the Perry Mason <laughs> TV shows, and and, and that's. A little bit how she learned English. I mean, so you know, the, I guess there's something in those TV shows, and those Perry Mason shows were pretty good. And we've had, you know, if if I look at some of the people who were on the, those Perry Mason shows, more than a few of them have been in our show over oh. the years. Like I know LQ Jones, LQ Jones was on a couple.
4: All right, now so, Clu Gulager was switching, in a couple. Yeah, now switching from movie trivia back to heritage trivia. Um, you want to tell the audience, they might not remember this, where was your father born? Dad.
2: Yeah, well, he wasn't that interested in the law, but <laughs> 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 he, he, was born, he was born in Puerto Rico of uh, Newfie parents. Um, so the long story sh- short of it is my his grandparents, or his par- his grandparents too, his parents, my grandparents were born in Newfoundland, Uh, My grandfather was in the Merchant Marine back in the early 1900s after the Spanish-American War. uh, He got stationed out of Puerto Rico. Part of it was my understanding back then, if you wanted a captain's commission, it was very difficult if you were a Catholic to get a Catholic's commission out of the the U.S. um, because the, the industry was controlled by the Masons. So he went to... Puerto Rico, he got his commission there. And once he was a sea captain in in Puerto Rico for about fifteen years, then eventually World War One broke out between the the England, France, and Germany, and then at that time there were a lot of commissions delivering supplies to the Allied government. So they moved to Brooklyn in nineteen sixteen. And you know, we've been here ever since. Uh, where our main office here is Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. is two blocks from my grandparents bought their house in 1918. And we've been in the same parish for way more than 100 years right now. There's always been a Connors and Our Lady of Angels Parish in Brooklyn. And if
4: if you ever make it to our office, also think about stopping by Our Lady of Angels, because it truly is a beautiful church.
2: Yeah, that that's true. My grandfather was on the building committee, so I understand of that church. I don't know how we got involved in this part. But, um, yeah, my, but my mother's born in Germany. My father's born in Puerto Rico, Irish descent, Irish parents um, from Newfoundland. So and Justin Daly also has who, you know, little cantankerous around here. Um, I had to speak <laughs> to him. He barks as much as Otto, but it's OK. Yeah. We well, him. he's, you know, we'll try to get him on to rebut <laughs> next week or whatever, but he's probably going to say no. In any event, I guess we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes.
0: How can I protect my family if something happens to me?
5: What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who
1: will help us take care of grandpa? Grandpa.
6: If you're a homeowner, 862 or older, and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888 888- And you could be on your way to a better retirement Frank Melia NMLS number 62591 Contour Mortgage Corporation NMLS number 34384 990 Stewart Avenue Suite 660 Garden City, New York 11530 Licensed Mortgage Banker New York State Department of Financial Services
3: Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do with Saint Francis in Beirut? We can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East.
2: But if we will help them every single day, just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they're recognized, that we love them, they're our cousins, sisters, they're our roots. So St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians, and you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, you know, after we broke for the last time, we asked Wei a little bit about Chinese restaurants and Chinese food, which I don't know, has anything to do with ask the lawyer. But Wei, what kind of Chinese restaurants are there? What's your favorite, and what's the difference in in your mind between the Chinese American restaurant and the Chinese restaurant?
3: Okay, so my favorite Chinese food will be more like Sichuan style or uh, Hunan style. They are more like spicy, but spicy in different ways. Um, but like we have so many different varieties of Chinese food. There are some like from northern part of China, like Guangzhou, which have more like they have more population here in Brooklyn. So we got most of Cantonese style restaurant here. Like they just they don't fry it a lot. They like steam foods or like just boiled and put salt and a little bit soy sauce. And uh, like, I'm not sure if anybody has been to a dim sum place, which is just like a more northern style. But my hometown is more like northern part. We like meat. We like salty, heavy, um, uh, heavy sauces on those, uh, like dishes.
4: Which I actually prefer the northern style of cooking, but that's you know.
2: Uh, and let me ask you something. I mean, like, our clients. What what dialects of Chinese do you speak, and what's the difference, and what's the difference between written Chinese and oral?
3: Oh, uh, I speak both Mandarin and Cantonese. Uh, most of Chinese languages are like uh, they're like, like are they call Chinese, but like a lot of them like only just like local dialect, like you have different accent accent for different part. But Cantonese is more like a totally different language. is because they have more. Uh, tones than regular Chinese speaking, so that's why it makes it harder to understand. I learned majority of my Cantonese from TV shows and from my husband because they are their family speaks Cantonese.
2: And. The written language. How much different is?
3: Oh, written language is uh, in mainland China is the same. So no matter how you like how you speak it, when you write it, it's the same word. But like in Hong Kong and Macau, they use traditional Chinese letters. Like uh, when you when you, you put them in writing, it's just it's more uh, complicated than the simplified Chinese word we use in mainland China, and we simplify it just to get more people actually uh, learn them because a lot of Chinese people, like, you know, before World War I, they just, they don't read and they cannot write.
2: Okay, so um, again, what what dialects do you speak? And if somebody, you know, when, when you spend some time in the Bayside office and doing estate planning there for the Chinese community and you also work, in our real estate office here in Bay Ridge. So, what uh, again? What dialects do you speak? If somebody has a friend or relative that needs to see you,
3: oh, I bo- I speak uh, both Mandarin and Cantonese, and like there are some like uh, of our basic uh, clients actually speak Cantonese, but like most of them like I, I can also speak English very well. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show
3: oh no problem thank you
4: oh and and while we're on that note let's just remind all of our listeners what languages we speak here at Connors and sullivan okay all right our languages are english spanish italian greek polish romanian russian ukrainian mandarin cantonese fusionese tagalog and hindi so you're always welcome to come in and ask questions in any of those languages thank
2: you so much for joining us We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors.
0: How can I protect my family if something happens to me?
5: What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my
1: kids? Who will help us take care of grandpa?
2: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Beth, you had a question or comment about estate taxes?
5: Yeah, everybody's always asking me, and I don't know. New York City, New York State, federal? I mean, are there any estate taxes in New York City? Uh, would you take it away? Because okay. I don't
2: know. There are no estate taxes in New York City. Uh, at least not as yet. Probably somebody will think about it and try to pass. And I think back maybe 20 or 30 years, they were talking about a New York City estate tax. But as far as I know... Nobody's talking about that right now, and I think we'd hear it from our political friends if they were. Now, as far as estate and gift taxes, let's start with the federal amount first. First of all, there's no estate inheritance tax anywhere between husband and wife. Again, we're going to assume they're both U.S. citizens. If one's not, we may want to do a type of trust, what we call a qualified domestic trust, so that we don't pay tax if we leave assets to a non-U.S. citizen. really doesn't come up that often, but if you're in that situation, please f- feel free again to give us a call. So there's no estate tax between husband and wife. Husband can leave his wife $100 million. Wife can leave her husband $100 million. There's no tax. New York State, federal. Then it's the same with gift taxes. A husband can give his wife you know, $100 million. Again, we're, we're considering the fact that both are U.S. citizens. Husband give his wife $100 million. Wife can give her husband a $1 million. There's no gift tax. There's no death tax. There's no estate tax. Now, it's when you start giving assets to other people, we may be paying some tax. One of the great myths is about gift taxes. Some people say, well, if I give away more than $17,000 a year, I have to pay a gift tax return, or I have to pay a gift tax. No. If you give away more than $17,000 a year to one person, you're obligated to file a gift tax return, but you do not have to pay a gift tax until presently, right now, today, your lifetime gifts exceed $12,900,000. And if you're married, that's 12900000 for husband, 12900000 for wife. So gift taxes usually are not a problem for the middle class. Now, if you live in New York State and you make a gift, if you die within three years of the gift, New York State can what they call claw back that gift into your estate. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're single because, remember, there's, there's no tax between husband and wife. So let's say you're single. you got a $7 million estate. You give $500,000 to your children today. That's fine and good. You file a return. You do not have to pay a New York State tax today, you do not have to pay a federal gift tax today. But if you die within three years, New York State is going to claw back that $500,000 you gave away and add it on to your estate. So if you have a $7 million estate in New York, your children are paying almost $700,000 in taxes. So that can be bad. That's why a lot of people move to Florida, because if you were in the same situation in Florida, There's no tax due. Let's say you're single again because, remember, there's no tax between husband and wife. Uh, You have a $10 million estate. You die today a New York State resident. Your children are going to have to pay a million dollars in taxes. That's whether it's your children, your grandchildren, uh, your nephews and nieces, your significant other, anybody but a spouse. So, again, that's why a lot of people with some assets, if you got $10 million in assets, in a lot of cases you want to move to Florida And not pay the tax. Now, when you move to Florida, it's not just a question of, you know, buying a house in Florida, paying your income taxes from Florida, and, you know, maybe having your death certificate rule that you're a Florida resident. The main fact is where do you live? Where have you committed your domicile? Where have you committed to live? Now, if you live more than 183 days a year in Florida, you are a Florida resident, and then your heirs pay no taxes. If you spend half your year in New York, and you spend more than half of a year in New York, you're a New York resident. And you, Some people are going to say, well, how do they know? Well, if you pass away and you get audited, if you pass away and you get audited, they know. They know every cell phone call that you make or take. They know when you go through the tunnel on the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel through your Easy Pass. They know where your credit cards are being charged to. They know that if you have a place in Florida that you're not paying an electric bill when you're not there, and so that, uh, you know, in July and August in Florida, let's say it's 90 degrees on the average day, and you're not paying an air conditioning bill. You're paying the minimum bill, whatever it is, $15, $20 a month. Well, they know you're probably not living there. And there's so many ways. I mean... If you drive, let's say, from the Verrazano Bridge to the Flatbush Avenue Bridge in Brooklyn, they have your picture ten times, and sometimes they have e- uh, even a picture of your face. So, if they're really have to get you, if they audit you, they know where you live. So, I, I I don't want to encourage anybody to play games and say you live in Florida when you don't. Um, you know, and if like I said, if they get audited. They know where you live. Obviously, if you go to Florida, you move to Florida, I would change your voting registration to there. I would file your estate taxes, for, uh, your income tax returns from there. I would get the homestead on your house there. Those are indications that you live there. But the main thing is, you should be spending more than half the year in Florida
5: um quick would that work with any state that you move to how does that work does are there different rules for different states as far as domicile
2: there might be but okay. you know that's the one that we usually deal with um I'm, I'm not even sure what the rule is if you live in three or four states which there are people that do that they may spend a third of the year in florida a third of the year in new york and a third of the year let's say in california um, well what if you sublet for three-quarters
4: of the month to somebody else, but that's still the state. You want to establish residen- re- residency in, because of taxes. It's where do you live. Okay.
2: All right. That simple. It's you know?
5: better just, don't, just tell the truth.
2: Yeah. Well, at least, you know, plan, like, and, and there's some people who keep diaries, um, you know, of where they live. Okay. Like I said, there's some people that, that keep diaries of, of where they live. Um, and that's not a bad idea. And, you know, especially if you drive back and forth and it may not be sure exactly what day you spend where, um, yeah, maybe you should keep a diary. Now, or, ordinarily, if you fly, the your credit card bills are going to show, you know, where you wh- when you take, took that plane and where you took it from.
5: I have another stupid question. What if, you know, you live, you have a home in New York and Florida. You really live in Florida now, but you travel a lot. You know, I have friends now that are, you know, taking cruises and everything else. Um, does that factor into it? You just say...
2: I'm not 100% sure that okay. the answer to that. I would dare say if that's the case and you're spending more time in Florida than New York and you vote in Florida, you... Pay your taxes in Florida. Okay. You have a homestead in Florida, um, but I'll tell you right now, New York. If you have a house here in New York and it's available for you to come back, then New York may say that you're a New York resident because you could live there. Um, New York wants to grab your money if they can. So in any event, the estate taxes in New York, six point five million or less, there's no tax. Whatever you leave to a spouse, there's no tax. So if we've got a husband and wife and they roughly have twelve million dollars in taxes. Well, basically what we can do, we can put $6 million in the husband's estate. It goes out tax-free to the kids. We put $6 million in the wife's estate. It goes out tax-free to the kids, and that way we can get really up to $13 million. $6.5 million times two, $13 million out tax-free. Now, the same principle applies to federal. Um, let's say husband dies first. He's got, let's say, the, the wife and, and husband have a $20 million estate husband dies first wife can file a return and what we call portability and then the husband dies even if he left everything to his wife the wife can still use his exemption his 12 million dollars and carry it over to her name so she can leave 24 million dollars i'm simplifying it but she can leave 24 million dollars to the children and what's really cool sometimes is she could make a gift if she has cash she can make a gift to her kids at that point get remarried and pick up another 12.5 million dollars $12.9 12900000 million, I'm sorry, that's the federal amount today. So, you know, if you're in that area, then you need to do some planning and, and talk it over. Um, but again, the, the gift taxes are really not a problem for the middle class. There's no gift tax due, again, to the federal government until you give away $12,900,000. And then some people say, why why did I hear that if I gave away more than $17,000, I have to pay a gift tax? Or 17000 is the most I can give away. Well, 17, it's not true that $17,000 is the most you can give away. You're supposed to file a gift tax return for money laundering purposes. Um, did you file, which is the question, did the Bidens file gift taxes on those things or income taxes? But that's another point altogether.
5: We'll never know.
2: I, I'm, I'm afraid we may not. But in any event, so let's say you have two children. Both children are married wife can give $17,000 to a daughter husband can $17,000 to his daughter that's $34,000 they can give away they don't have to file a return then you can give the same thing to the son so that's $68,000 you can give away you don't have to file a return and that's not counting in-laws or grandchildren or anything else And you can do that every calendar year you can give away let's say that $68,000 today give away that's $68,000 $68,000 January 1st next year. You don't even have to file a gift tax return. But let's say you give $100,000 to your nephew today. It's the only gift you've ever made. It's the only gift you're ever going to make. You have to file a gift tax return but there's no gift tax due. You give $100,000 you file a return you show what you're doing. You're you know, making sure that you're not doing any money laundering. Um, but you know, you're allowed to do it, and there's no tax due. There's no tax due until your lifetime gifts over the $17,000 amount exceeds $12,900,000. I doubt if very many people in the audience are going to give away more than $12,900,000 to their lifetime. And remember, that's 12900000 for a husband, $12,000,000 for a wife. Now, one other thing, just to keep in mind, we're talking about gift and estate taxes, We're not talking about Medicaid. Some people confuse the two. Let's say they say, well, I've got my father's going into a nursing home and he's got $170,000 and he's got 10 grandchildren. Why don't we give $17,000 to each one of his 10 grandchildren and that money is protected from the nursing home? No, it's perfectly fine as far as the IRS is concerned. But if you give away $170,000, in assets, that means you have a penalty with Medicaid where you have to pay for um, approximately 14, 15 months of nursing home care. And this is where it can be very dangerous. Let's say we have a married couple, husband and wife. Uh, husband, he's perfectly fine. He gives away that $170,000. Wife, husband then has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to apply for nursing home Medicaid on his behalf. Um the IRS is not going to be a problem on this. That 170000 no, you don't have to file a return. You don't have to do anything about it. But Medicaid is going to say you can't apply if the husband makes a gift. The wife cannot apply for Medicaid for her husband for 15 months after that time period. So that $170,000 gift may leave mom with you know, a $200,000 nursing home bill. So, you got to be very careful about making gifts. Yes, we're we're not really too worried about the IRS, but New York State Medicaid, there's a penalty for each $13,000 you give away. You have to pay for one month in the nursing home if the gift comes up within five years prior to your application for nursing home Medicaid. So, again, you got to be really very, very careful. And here's one other thing, too. You know, like, let's say you got a house. Your house is worth a million dollars. You paid fifty thousand dollars for your house, whatever, thirty years ago, it's worth a million dollars today. And you say, Well, hey, wait a minute, there's no gift tax. I can just give the house to my kids a million dollars. And you certainly can. But and you don't have you should file a return, but you don't have to pay taxes. But then what happens is your children, let's say they don't live in the house, when you pass away and they sell the house, they're gonna have to pay a capital gain on the difference between what you paid for it we're going to say $50,000 now and what they sell it for and we'll hypothetically say a million dollars they're going to have a $950,000 capital gain which is more than $300,000 in real taxes at the same time if you left the house in your name until you passed away capital gains are wiped out by death so in other words if if your children inherit your house you paid 50000 for it, it's worth a million dollars on the day you pass away. Your children sell the house soon after you pass away for a million dollars. They do not have to pay a capital gains tax, an income tax. They sell, and remember, there's no estate tax under $6.5 So they sell the house, let's say, for a million dollars. They put a million dollars in their, their pocket. And that's why you just don't put somebody else's name on your deed and go willy-nilly and give assets away. You know, too many people... I mean, life used to be simpler. Taxes weren't as difficult some years back. But you just don't give the house to your kids, let alone all the bad things that we talked about last week. You put your son's name on the deed. His di- He dies. His wife inherits his part of the house. And then before you know it, she starts some kind of action to throw you out of your own house. But just for tax purposes, you're going to save your kids $300,000 in taxes to do it that way. And that's if your house is worth a million. If your house is worth $2 million, it may save your kids $600,000 in tax. And, and if you come in to see us to do a plan, it's in my DNA. I'm not going to do a plan for you and your kids that would lead to more taxes. My plan is to take a look at everything. What are our possible capital gains taxes? What are our possible estate taxes? What are you know, other miscellaneous taxes we may have to pay? And what we're going to try to do is lower the tax bill all the way down the line. And if you, want, if you want us to put together a plan for you, please give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer.
6: If you're a homeowner eight sixty two or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888 954 7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike
2: Connors. As most of you know out there, we're, you know, big fans of history and I'm a big fan of baseball. Nobody else here is, though. Oh, that's Um, not true. But, you know, one one of the interesting things, I think, is the USS Cooperstown, a a Navy um, combat vessel. And it's in honor of the ballplayers who are in the Hall of Fame who put on the uniform of the United States military during time of war. And when I first heard, heard... read the article, uh, They said there were 70, and I couldn't believe there were 70 Hall of Famers who were in the U.S. military. But then when I saw the list, I was a little bit surprised, but yes. Um, now, part of the reason, which may throw some of us off, the Negro League players are included that are in the Hall of Fame, and there were more than a few of those, you know, Very like Bull- Bullet right. Joe Rogan and uh, Judd Wilson. And, and some guys that ordinarily, uh, ordinarily baseball fans may not have heard about, um, but were obviously Hall of Fame caliber players who played in the Negro Leagues. And of course, uh, some of you can say, how is he saying that word? But that's what they were called back in the early 1900s.
5: How far back does this go? How far back do the people are the, are the people in the Hall of Fame? When does it begin?
2: Well, they're players from the whole of who were playing in 1871.
5: So, could they? Could some of them have been in? There's one.
2: Well, Morgan Buckley was a Civil War okay. veteran. Okay. Okay. And that's the only one because you got to remember, Civil War ended in 1865. The National League started in 1876. So that would have been 11 years later. And even if a guy is 21 or 22, and players did not play a long time back in the 19th century. Now, uh. You know, I take that back, because let's say you had Cap Anson, who probably played from 1871 to 1897, and he played well into his 40s, so I shouldn't say that, but the, the players, a- on average, did not play as long as they play today, and of course, you know, you, they were just making a living.
5: That's all I was wondering. Do it, would they paid enough to actually make a living?
2: Well, they could make a living, but it wasn't, you know, like, you may have made a good salary or something like that, like King Kelly. I understand made uh, about $10,000 a year in the 1880s, which was a lot of money, but he could do something else and do promotions and things like that. I remember uh, reading a biography about Casey Stengel, and I think he was making $6,000 a year in the major leagues. as basically a platoon outfielder, and there were some guys in AAA who were making $8,000 a year as a starting outfielder. So it was a different world, and of course, also back then, honest wagner was making i think $15,000 a year and his man and a manager named bill killifer was making $15,000 a year uh, $30,000 a year i'm sorry Twice so i mean as much. managers were considered ball players would retire to become a manager back then like john McGraw retired from being a baseball player to be to be a manager but in any event there are 70 hall of fame ballplayers who served in the us military now some of them like, I know Casey Stengel's part of the list. My understanding is Casey Stengel was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard <laughs> during the war, but you know, I guess he was in the uniform service or whatever he at the did time. his duty, right? Right. And you know, there's some names in there because you forget Willie Mays was an active duty during the Korean War, and you know his. You no, know, I know you know some of the books right now saying Willie Mays is the greatest ball player of all time. Um, you know, they're basing statistics and mathematical formulas that I don't completely understand. But, you know, Willie Mays lost way more than a full year in Korea, part of one year and the, all of another year. And he probably would have hit another 70 or 80 home runs, which means he might have bre- broken uh, Babe Ruth's record. Of course, Hank Aaron right. came around and broke it later anyway.
5: Right.
2: Um, but, you know, if he didn't spend that year and a half in the mil- in military – and you know it's amazing these ballplayers did their duty back then and they didn't complain. Of course, Ted Williams is the biggest. You know, how I many mean, years? he lost he he three years in World War II and two years in Korea. Um, so he had a big chunk of his service time, and he had 521 home runs. So it's hard to project how many home runs he would have hit. You know, over his uh, right. major league career, if he didn't lose all that time. I mean, he he almost certainly would have hit. Way more than 150 more home runs, and that would have got him close. And and he retired the year he retired, he had 29 home runs. So if he's close to breaking the record, he may have stayed for another year or two. Um, you know, but Gil Hodges was in Okinawa in World War II. Uh, Warren Spahn, and I was told this by Faye Vincent, he was at the bridge of Remagen, and in World War II, he was a marginal. Well, he was a minor league pitcher. He pitched for the Braves, I think, Boston Braves in 1942. Casey Stengel ordered him to knock down uh, another hitter, and he didn't do it, and Casey Stengel sent him back to Hartford and say, you know, grow up, kid. That's harsh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he didn't He didn't pitch again in, in the major leagues till 1946, so he didn't win his first major league game until he was 25 years of age, and then he still ended up winning. 366 major league games. So he real you know, and I think he's a little underrated today. You know, forget, yeah, we hear all the stuff about Koufax and everything, and a great pitcher. Koufax won 160 some odd games. Warren Spawn played in the same time period, and he won 366 games. Oh, my games. goodness. Now, and if you took, you know, Warren Spawn's last 12 years and, um, uh, ten years in in the major leagues, and you take Sandy Koufax's ten years in the major leagues. They won almost the same amount of games, and Warren Spahn had a two hundred game career before that, and they pitched exactly in the same era.
5: Great,
2: you know. Well, yeah, Warren Spahn was a little on decline when Koufax was his best.
5: Well, why why didn't people promote Spahn more?
2: Because Koufax struck out a lot more people, was more exciting, um, and Koufax. Played in Brooklyn and played oh, in L.A. Okay, okay. You know where Warren Spahn played in Milwaukee, so that was the reason. And you know, talking about non non Hall of Fame ball players, I don't know if nobody remembers him. But Cecil Travis, we did talk to him with Fay Vincent. Cecil Travis was a shortstop. His last year, whether it was 1942, I shouldn't say his last year, but the last year before going to war in 1942, he was a shortstop. He hit 359. He went. He was in combat duty during World War II. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He suffered frostbite, and when he came back after the service, he after, after he finished his years in the service, he was only a two hundred fifty hitter. Okay, that's, you know, sad. And, that's and sad. Now, yes, you're four years older, but you also had frostbite, and he was on a Hall of Fame trajectory. His lifetime batting average is still three fourteen which for a shortstop is way up there. Of course, his career doesn't look as long because he lost four years to the service, and he didn't end on a strong note. He was only a two fifty hitter the last couple of years. So, But I, I think he, to some extent, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame because his numbers were there, and because he served his country for three to four years, I, right. I don't think he should be, Right. you know overlooked. He's not a Hall of Famer, but I'm just saying that. And of course, Larry Doby, we talked about Larry Doby with uh, you know, Commissioner Vincent some years ago. I mean, he was the first American League player Amer- African American. And of course, he was a manager. He's one of the first managers, and he's a little overlooked today. I don't think he gets as much recognition. Jackie Robinson gets every bit of recognition, and he deserves it. But Larry Doby, I think was overlooked in, in retrospect. He was only a little bit b- behind Jackie Robinson. And he played, he was the first African-American player in the, you know, in the major leagues. In the Na- American League, I'm sorry. So, you know, and, and a lot of these poor players did play, uh, you know, in the Negro Leagues. I think Willie Mays played there. Ernie Banks was another Korean War vet who played in uh, the Negro Leagues and also played in the major leagues after that. Um, they were the uh, Look at the list, and it, it really is remarkable. Yogi Berra. Was in the Navy. Um, And, you know, and obviously had a long career after that. And that remembers another guest, brings to mind another guest we had on some years back, Bobby Brown, who's now deceased. But Bobby Brown was in World War II, he was a medic in World War II. He then went to medical school part time, playing Major League Baseball part time. I think he played in four World Series you know, between 1940-something, 1950-something. Then he went into Korea as a doctor. So he was in World War II as a medic, the Korean War as a medical doctor. Then he played, he came back, he played a little bit more in the major leagues as a third baseman. Good ball player, obviously not a Hall of Famer. And then he quit baseball to become a full-time cardiologist. And then later on, when he couldn't operate anymore, he became the... American League Baseball Commissioner. I
5: mean, we should play that interview again, because it, it's it's very good.
2: Right. And, you know, here's a man, you know, World War II medic, Korean War doctor, you know, obviously a patriot. And I bet you 10 to 1 he could have gotten out of going into the Korean War. Um, medical school, Major League Baseball player. He wasn't that young, obviously, at that time. So... Bobby Brown, another hero. Again, he's not a Hall of Famer. He's not part of the Cooperstown group. I'm just getting sidetracked, reminiscing about all oh, baseball players. But
5: a history. History and heroes.
2: Yeah, and Ty Cobb was in the military for a little bit. Of course, a lot of the ball players who were in World War I, they were in for a very short period of time because the American involvement in World War I was really not that long. And so some of them really missed only about half a season, like Casey Stengler, Ty Cobb. And I'm... You know, like I said, Gil Hodges was in Okinawa. Warren Spahn was at the bridge at Bermoggan. I mean, some of these ballplayers played baseball in the Army, and they didn't, you know. But Ted Williams, Warren Spahn, um, Cecil Travis, Bobby Brown, they were in combat areas. And Ted Williams, some guy who served with Ted Williams once told me that Ted Williams' plane was all shot up and it was crash landing. And his plane was on fire, and one of the guys who rescued him out of the fire asked for his autograph. <laughs> He's coming out of the... <laughs> coming off the plane, but you know, I mean, Ted Williams, you know, five years in the U.S. military, you know, those guys did their duty; they were true patriot Americans. And I think Ted Williams also knew George Bush, President George Herbert Walker Bush. And I think that's why he campaigned for them a little bit back, you know, in the later part of, of their lives. But in any anyway, I, I guess we're running out of time right now. Remember, we're going to have seminars the end of June. We're, you know, coming up on the Memorial Day weekend. Let's get ready for Memorial Day. Remember those who gave their lives in service to their countries. And, you know, take a look. Take a look at the list of Hall of Famers. There are. I was I was surprised. Again, some of the Bullet Joe Rogan, who who is a great hitter and a great pitcher, similar to Babe Ruth. Not, maybe not as good a hitter as Babe Ruth, but you know as good a pitcher as Babe Ruth was, and um, a very very good hitter. So there are a lot of interesting histories in the Negro Leagues when you go over the stats. And right now you can get most of these stats on the computer, so it's interesting. It's interesting for me as somebody who's interested in baseball history. But in any event, those of you bored by baseball, we'll have another topic next week. Thank you for listening to Ask the lawyer. We'll be back at the same time and places next weekend.
5: Bye-bye, everybody.
4: Thank you so much for joining us. We are
0: gathered here on Hallowed Ground. We are gathered here on Hallowed Ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We are gathered, here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718 238 6500.
1: The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.